Welcome to the Nicholas and Tally Show, where we chat with entrepreneurs, experts, and entertainers to help you live a more fulfilling life and take your business to the next level. Today, we're chatting with Laura Gassner-Odding. Laura is a Washington Post best-selling author, keynote speaker, executive coach, and a self-proclaimed kick in the high knee wrapped in a warm hug. Laura's TEDx on Wonderhell was chosen as an editor's pick, and she has been featured on the Today Show, Good Morning America, Oprah Daily, Harvard Business Review, and many more. Before we dive in, I gotta ask you something. Are you looking to launch or grow your own podcast? Do you want to rub shoulders alongside the best leaders in your industry? How about turning your podcast into an absolute content machine? Look no further. You can apply to work with me through the link in the show notes. I'm looking for five driven entrepreneurs that are ready to create a high quality podcast that will engage your target audience as well as strengthen your brand. If you're ready to take the plunge, schedule a free consultation with me today by hitting the link in the show notes. Riddle of the week, what is the difference between a jeweler and a jailer? Stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out. That was the intro. Now here is the episode. We're going to dive right in. Here's what I have for you. You had a teacher in fourth grade that said you'd make a great lawyer. Let's fast forward in the timeline here. You went to law school, then you dropped out. And this seems like a great launching point for the topic of how we allow others to hand us our goals in life. What are some clear signs that we are in pursuit of what other people wanted for us rather than the goals that would be most in alignment for us? Well, I think the first sign is when you make a decision about who you're going to be for the rest of your life when you're in fourth grade, right? I mean, this teacher yeah. was like, you're a pretty argumentative young woman. You, you'd make a good lawyer. And of course, at the time, I was watching like L.A. Law and Ally McBeal, and it seemed so glamorous. So I was like, okay, that, that makes sense. Of course, I argued yeah. with her first because, you know, I'm argumentative. So I had to tell her she was wrong. But um, then I found myself in law school. And when I was there, I was like, I don't really want to be here. Like, I'm not excited about anything we're reading. I'm not interested in any of the lectures. Like, I'm not, this isn't interesting for me. I was working hard. I was trying to get the grades. But there's this moment when you realize that you're just not hungry for the thing that you're trying to perform and you can't be insatiably hungry for somebody else's goals, right? So if you find yourself working really hard for something, that you don't actually really care about, that's a pretty good sign that you're pursuing somebody else's goals and not your own. Jeez, yikes. When you got to law school, were you still thinking about your fourth grade teacher or had this suddenly become maybe like your parents' dream for you? Like you're going to be the lawyer child in the family or something like that? Yeah, it, it, absolutely. I, You know, my mother, who was wonderful and loving and brilliant, grew up at a time when women who wanted to go into the workforce got to be nurses or teachers, right? Mm, like those yeah. were kind of the choices. And I think if my mom were born at a different time, like if she were born 40 years later, she probably would have been running IBM, right? I mean, she's just absolutely brilliant. And I think she always wanted to be a lawyer. So I think there was probably maybe a little bit of projection on her part. Um, it's very difficult. I've got two kids of my own and that whole thing of like, you know, you want your kids to do what you haven't done. Yeah. But I think along the way, we pick up other people's ideas, right? So I had the teacher, and then I had the parent, and then later I had a boss who had an idea of what success should be that didn't match my own. And even if you don't have the parent, the teacher, the boss, we have these celebrities that are out there that are being like, bigger, better, faster, more, lean in, crush it, like whatever the whatever the hustle porn thing du jour is, we get that as the definition of success. Like I grew up in the 80s, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. But even if you don't have any of that, there's still the person inside of you, right? So when you're 16, 17, 18 years old, some guidance counselor sits you down and is like, here's a list of things that make a good job good, right? A valuable job. And there are things like 
Are you inspired by the leader? Do you like the mission of the organization? How broad is the impact? How many skills will you learn? How prestigious will it look on your resume? How much money will you make? Like there's like a list of things, but nobody ever says, hey, Nicholas, why don't you prioritize this list and what matters to you? So it's not just the value of the job, it's the value of the job to you. But at that point, when you're 15, 16, 17 years old, they go pick a trade, pick a major, pick a college, pick a job, pick a career, and you go, okay. And you set yourself up on a path. And what happens is you don't have a frontal lobe in that moment, right? So you set yourself up on a path. You've made a decision about who you're going to be for the rest of your life before you literally have the capacity to make a good decision. And so then you wake up at like 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, and you're like, is this all there is? Is this all I'm meant for? Because we make these decisions about who we're going to be before we even know who we are. I mean, I got to tell you, I think I just recently developed my frontal lobe and I'm still making bad decisions. So... I'm with you. <laughs> you know, my, my, my husband and I just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary yesterday. And, you know, I'm 52 and my husband's uh, just is about to turn 50, which means that both of us walked down the aisle before we literally had fully formed frontal lobes. And I joke around that I was like, I got him before he was able to make a good decision. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you snuck that one in there right before. <laughs> snuck it in right under the wire. Yeah, that's awesome. Something that I think is kind of in line with what you're saying too is, there's like all these different paths that we could take and also understanding how to prioritize them. I've heard you speak on consonants and how it can break down into four phases and steps, calling, connection, contribution, and control. And the one I want to focus on is calling because, and this is actually something that I kind of learned from you as I was researching this, like I've never really considered it, but you can have multiple callings throughout your lives. So being someone who has worked on Bill Clinton's campaign to executive search, keynote speaker, author, how do you know when it's time to hang up one calling for the next? Or maybe even, like you're mentioning, reprioritize this list to go down the path that's most aligned. Yeah. You know, what's funny is that when my last book came out, Limitless, where I talk about this idea of consonants, I did like 150 podcasts. And I got on more than one occasion what I consider to be the dumbest question ever, which is, what advice would you give your 22-year-old self? And I would think to myself, like, what advice would I give my 22-year-old self who's listening on their cell phone to a podcast that I recorded on the internet? None of those things existed when I was 22. So even if I did know myself, the world around me has changed so much that like the advice that I would give my 22-year-old self is useless, right? Like it's it's that you should just keep learning and growing and knowing that you don't know everything. So this 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 notion that we're going to have one calling in life, like, oh, you're calling, oh, like this holier-than-thou thing is kind of nonsense because even if you do have a calling, the world around you changes. And so, you know, what you care about should and will change also over time. So- number one, the notion that we only have one, he has a calling. This is his calling. Like the rest that's of your just life. nonsense. We have multiple callings. The rest of me, we have, I have multiple callings right now. Like I want to launch this book to a great bestseller, but I also have a kid who's about to leave for college and I want to launch him to be a great adult, right? Like I, mm-hmm. like there are lots of things that I care about right now. I don't have just one right now, but um, we get calling wrong because we think that it has to be a purpose and purpose is, has mm. to have lofty and higher in front of it. Like if you're literally not taking the shirt off your back and giving it to a poor kid in need in some third world country, 
you don't have real purpose. You're just pushing paper. So your calling is kind of nonsense. I think that if your calling is curing cancer, amazing, awesome, go for it. If your calling is working at a job where you can make as much money as possible so that you can get out of debt so that your children can make decisions that are different than the ones you had to make, that's awesome too. And if your calling is just buying a Maserati and a beach house, that's also awesome. Like your calling is just your calling. And I think we have to stop purpose shaming people because Mm. what we care about, what you care about is just what you care about. We got to stop giving votes in our lives to people who shouldn't have even shouldn't have voices. And look, if you are the kind of person who wants to buy the Maserati in a beach house and you can make tons of money, if you make tons of money and you donate some of that money to the nonprofit that's curing cancer, they call you a philanthropist, right? Like they <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they, exactly. they they put your name on the wall. Like <laughs> you think get a about that. So, yeah. <laughs> like say you're somebody who can make a million dollars. Right? Like you can make a million dollars and if you you can live very well on 500,000, right? So you take that other $500,000 and you donate it to the nonprofit that's trying to cure cancer, you're paying for like three or four staff members. Mm. I would argue that if you're somebody who can make a million dollars doing something else, that's probably the highest and best use of your time. That should be your calling. And you should help the people whose calling it is to cure cancer to be employed by the organization that's helping cure cancer, right? So like, I just, I think that we have to, number one, know we have multiple callings throughout our lives. And number two, know that your calling is just your calling and you don't have to let, and nobody else has to approve of it. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I, I I actually love the term purpose that's a little, shaming. That's a little mini rant. <laughs> I'm all for it. Let's keep the rant There's going. There's so much. You know, yeah. I mean, look, so I spent 20 years in executive search and it was my job in executive search to call the most successful people in the world and recruit them away on behalf of my clients. It sounds like a hard job, right? Like call people who are super successful. Oh, and by the way, these people also worked in nonprofits, universities, foundations, advocacy organizations. They had purpose, Super successful people with purpose. I would call all of them because they were super successful. But despite all that success and all that purpose, they all called me back because they weren't very happy, right? So even people who have purpose still haven't figured it all out because everybody has all these other competing callings in their lives. Uh, Let's touch on your kind of uh, experience with that. I have down in here that you, you were that high level executive and you did have the corner office and you were disappointed with things. What about those circumstances for you left you feeling empty at times? Yeah. So (laughs) I remember it, it, it happened. It was, it was a very clear moment for me when it happened. I was sitting in my corner office. I was the youngest vice president. I was, successful, right? Capital S successful. And I was sitting there listening to my clients tell me about the um the problem that they were having, right? They 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 just lost their CEO. They needed to find a leader to bring them into the next decade of what this organization was going to do. And I remember thinking like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And in my head, I was doing the math. Mm -hmm. And the math was going to say, Laura, you're about to make your nut. You're about to make the number that will make your boss happy. So you're going to get the bonus, right? You're going to get the bonus. You're going to get the, like all the things you've been asking for. Amazing. Except Nicholas, I didn't because my, my, my audience, right? My audience, my clients who were sitting there noticed that I wasn't really paying attention to their problem. I was paying attention to my problem. My problem was that I needed to sell more work. Their problem was that they needed me to find amazing candidates. And so I didn't make my nut because I didn't sell the work because they could tell that I didn't care. They could tell that I was not, I was kind of half listening, right? I was mailing it in. And I realized in that moment that my definition of success was that I wanted to help my clients do these amazing things and change the world. That's what I wanted to do. My boss's definition of success was that he wanted to 
fat bottom line. Yeah. He wanted more sales, more revenue, more profit. And that was the moment that I realized that my definition of success didn't align with my boss's definition of success. And that's the moment that I realized that I wasn't actually part of my client's solution which may be part of their problem. And when you realize that you're actually not doing the thing you thought you were doing and it doesn't align with who you are in your core, you can't stay. You just can't. It's conflicting. There's conflicting desires and wants. Do you think we have to, yeah, I'm curious about this. Do you think that we have to be in alignment on our definitions of success to work in an environment that is propelling us forward in a way? Yeah, I think I think we do. But here's the thing, like your definition of success could be, I don't really care what kind of impact I make in the world. I don't really care if the work I'm doing connects at all to anything that matters. I just want to maximize my income right now, period. Yeah. That could be yeah. your calling. Your calling could be maximizing income. So it doesn't, like, it, here, I, have a, I have an assessment that's up online at limitlessassessment.com and there's like 67 questions. It's very long and, and, and it takes like 20 minutes to take, but it will tell you if you're in consonance, if you're in alignment. If you're somebody who all, like when I was 22 years old, dropping out of law school and joining that presidential campaign, I had all the calling in the world. I was inspired by this candidate. I was inspired by his ideas. It was it was just I was I was idealistic. I was on cloud 9. But I was getting coffee for the guy who got coffee for the guy who got coffee, right? Oof. Like I had there my yeah. work did not connect at all to anything that mattered. It was like I was the peon's peon. So I had no connection whatsoever. In terms of contribution, I was getting paid in all the ramen soup I could eat, Love all the it. idealism I could eat and <laughs> Like I wasn't making any money, right? But I was manifesting my values on a daily basis and it was amazing. And then in terms of control, there was no control. Like they could have sent me to Iowa one day, Florida the next day, California the day after that. I didn't have any control whatsoever, but it didn't matter because I didn't need control. I was 22 years old. Nobody was relying on me. It didn't matter. I didn't need a lot of contribution because I was like living, like I was couch surfing. I knew that if this guy won, maybe I'd have an interesting job, right? But like it didn't, none of that stuff mattered. All I cared about, I wanted lots of calling. I had lots of calling. I wanted enough contribution. I had enough contribution. And in terms of, you know, connection and and control, I didn't need it and I didn't have it. So I was perfectly in alignment. I was perfectly in continence. Now I'm not going to, you know, to like pull a Linda Evangelista, like I'm not getting out of bed for less than $25,000 a day, right? Like I'm not (laughs) going to go travel across the world, go give a speech, miss four days of, you know, being at home with my family unless somebody's paying me my fee. Like that's where I am right now. Like it's, I'm just in a very different place right now. So at every age and at every stage, what matters to us, what puts us in alignment what we care about is different. And I think we have to, and it's probably like every five to seven years, we have to stop and we have to say, did what make me happy yesterday? Will that still make me happy today? Or have things changed? Those are hard conversations to have with ourselves. I think sometimes people are probably going to shy away because what if they don't like the answer? What if I find something out about myself that I have to confront all of these things in my life that I've been pushing through or ignoring or, you know, that person that's been talking to my ear saying, you're doing a good job in this, but I hate it. I have to face all those things. That's scary. I mean, I think it's very scary. And I think that I think the pandemic was kind of a reckoning for a lot of us. Like, I think a lot of people woke up during the pandemic and were like, when life goes back to normal, is the normal I'm going back to really the life I want? And I think for a lot of people, the answer was, Hell no, really, right? Yeah. Like, hell no, no. Like, <laughs> I got to change some things. Not really. And, you know, I think what happens is, like, we have a lot of people who are surrounding us. And a lot of those people have 
different definitions of success than we do. So maybe they want us to do what they're doing, because if we don't, then that calls into question whether their decisions are the right decisions for them. Maybe yeah. they were projecting on us because they want to feel like they're making the right choices. Like there, there are a lot of, or maybe they're doing it because it's like the safe choice and they, they want to make sure, you know, there are people in our lives, like your family, they don't want you to get hurt. Like the last time I lived in the same house as my parents, I was 17 years old. So when I told yeah. them I was dropping out of law school and joining a presidential campaign, they thought I was insane. When I told them I was leaving the White House and going to executive search, they thought I was insane. When I told them I was leaving that big firm and starting my own, they thought I was insane. When I told them I was selling that firm when I was at the height of my success, they thought I was insane. Each time they were like, Laura, are you sure you should do that? Like, are you sure like you're in the safe place right now? Like that's a risk. It's not that they didn't think I could do it. They didn't know what I could do. Last time I lived in that house, I brought the car back late for curfew with the volume turned all the way up, but the gas tank turned all the way down, right? Like I like <laughs> they they didn't they don't know what I can do. So like, you know, you have those people in your lives who they did they want they they hold you in their hearts, but they don't know your heart. Like they don't know what you can do. And then you have the people that are jealous, right? The ones that like, they only see your rise through the lens of their own stagnation. So of course they're like, ooh, I don't know. And they're kind of like smiles in the front and knives in the back. And then there's the worst one are the ones that you run into in the coffee shop. And a lot of them are like, your friends from high school who are like selling boxed wine on Facebook, right? But you see them and they're like, you tell them your, your your big crazy goal, like you're going to change, you're going to do something different. They're like, I don't know, Nicholas. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know if Sounds you should like do a, that. Yeah, don't like do that's, that, one. that seems really scary. Don't, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't do that. That's too scary. What they really mean is I couldn't do that. I'm too scared. So I think we have to be really judicious about the opinions that we're taking, right? The voices that are coming into our into our world. I said earlier, like we have to stop giving votes to people who shouldn't even have voices, but we do it. I mean, I, like for years, I took all of those people and I took all of their seeds of doubt and I planted them in my garden and I fertilized them all the same and I put the same sun and I, I let them all grow equally. And there's a certain point where you just have to say like, who in my life makes me better? Who in my life demands that I don't settle for mediocrity, that I am the best version of myself. And how do I turn up the volume on them and turn the vo down the volume on everybody else? Oh, that's fantastic. I think that's such sound advice. Something that I've done recently or maybe in the last recent years is I've started to compartmentalize where I get advice from. So it's not always the sense that everybody gets a say, kind of like you're saying, but some people will get a say, but if I know that you have no experience in business, Obviously, I'm not going to take your advice on business seriously, so that's fine. Go ahead, talk talk your talk, do what you got to do, but I'm really going to get my advice from people that know their business stuff or relationships even. If you've been through you oh. know, difficult relationships, I'm going to go with somebody that's had a successful relationship. So not all opinions are, are weighted equally. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. I One day, I swear to God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get t-shirts printed that say, before you tell me where to go, show me where you've been. And on the back, it says, hashtag, give me the P&L. Because I'm so, I'm so sick of these, like, coaches, these executive yeah. coaches, these life. I mean, I'm a coach, but, like, I'm sick of these coaches who, like, oh, well, I wasn't successful running my business, so I'll just coach other people on how to run theirs. It's like, well, no. Like, Ugh. if you are going to take advice from anybody, make sure, like – Make sure they've walked the path before you take – like, don't take directions from someone who doesn't know – hasn't been there. Like, they don't know where they're going. 
it's just, I don't know, it's crazy. It's nonsense. And yet there are full industries. I mean, I write personal development books, they're self-help books. There's self-help authors who have, like, I know I know authors who write about leadership who have never led, mm. who write about, you know, uh, 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 building corporate culture who have never worked in a corporation. Like, I know, I, I th- there are academics who have studied it, fine. And then there are people like me who have lived it, fine. But then there's, like, everybody in the middle. And it's like, where is the knowledge? Like, are you just giving book reports on other people's... Yeah. Thoughts like what are where you doing? Where are you pulling it from? Yeah, geez. Where are you pulling it from? I know where they're pulling it from. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I recently did more sales calls than I've done ever before in my life. It's all around like helping people start their podcasts, get a podcast going, etc. And a lot of times, and I I've heard rumors about the coaching industry having snake oil salesman-esque type people. But I was always, maybe I've had good experience, you know, good experiences in the past. But all of these coaches that kept coming on, they kept saying like, I don't have any goals. I don't have any direction. I don't know where I want to take things. And I'm like, you want to coach other people on things? This, this is dangerous. Find, find your own stuff out first. Get get some experience. And you know, on that, on that note of dangerous, like so, I make my living as a keynote speaker. I get on stages in front of a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand people, and I tell them what they should do. Right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm giving them advice. Some of it's entertainment, but it's you know I do it in a way to like move them to do something. And I was having a conversation with a, a group of speakers years ago, and they were all talking about like, oh, I got to nail the bit, and I've got this great joke, and here's the trick I use to get the standing ovation. And I was like. What about your content? Yeah. Is your content good? Like, is your content right? Because, like, literally people are making decisions. Like, I have people coming up to me in book signing lines after I speak that are like, I read the first half of your book and I quit my job. And I want to be like, read the second half. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, is that the right decision? I'm not sure. Yeah. Like, I don't, you know. Like, I take it very seriously. Like, I believe that if if somebody is, if, if you are in a position where somebody is listening to your show, if they're reading your book, if they're hearing you on stage – you better get the content right because people are making decisions based on what you tell them. The transformation is, is crucial. Here's something else I've heard you discuss that I think is in line with this. Yeah, you said you wanted more rants. <laughs> I'm rants. here for them. I'm here for them. The entrepreneurs typically base their businesses off of impact, flexibility and freedom and profits. And obviously just in this conversation alone, I can see impact is very important for you. So how did you measure impact throughout your career? How did you tally them up? Yeah. Um, so at, at different times, uh, it was different, right? So um, impact could be, um, you know, what are the, what are, what are the missions of my clients and am I working with them and helping them do more of what they want to do in the world? Um, impact could be like, if, if I'm working as an executive coach with entrepreneurs and how are they building their businesses? Um, impact could be, um, how big are the audiences that I'm in front of and how many people can I, can I, you know, reach each time? So, you know, impact is always, is always different, but, um, it's also, it's interesting because, you could take all of those things like personal freedom and flexibility could be, you know, am I deciding which clients I want to work with and which clients I don't want to work with? Or is it, am I deciding I want to take Friday afternoons every week and have self-care? Or am I saying I'm going to work at 10 PM on a Tuesday because at 10 AM on the Tuesday, I'm going to my kids' music recital, right? So you can, you can also, uh, that definition may be different. And then when you take profit, profit could also be different. Like, you know, I, I have a speaking fee. 
And I tell my clients all the time that like my fee is my fee. I never negotiate my fee until I do, right? So I negotiate, (laughs) I know what value I bring to the stage and I wanna make sure I get that value every single time, but there's lots of ways for me to get paid. I can get paid in cash, I can get paid in bulk book buys, I can get paid in introductions to VIPs, I can get paid in um, great you know, professional video and photography, I can get paid in introductions to local news media, right? So there's like, when we think about personal freedom and flexibility, we think about impact and we think about profit, those things will all mean something different to each of us. But my theory is that as an entrepreneur, you can make decisions at any given time, like for a phase or season of your of your business growth, on probably two of the three of them. It's very hard to make decisions on all three, but if you stick to two for a period of time, you'll see that the third one always comes as well. Oh, that's great. And then I'm going to do a callback on this too when we're talking about impact. Your TED talk on you know asking the questions, how can I help? Something that came to light to me that I thought was really fascinating was how some of these short-term feelings of I'm going to make an impact is really just fulfilling our ego in a way of oh yes how can I how can I get involved? Which makes me wonder if that we're falling into a daily trap of doing that. So each day we wake up and we say, what's the quickest thing I can do to fulfill my ego rather than create a long-term impact? What do you think a mindset shift would look like? What's necessary when we need to evaluate our lives to actually have greater impact, kind of what you're saying. Hey there, Nicholas Detali here. Are you looking to take your business to the next level and expand your reach? Well, have you considered starting your own podcast? As a successful entrepreneur, you already know the value of great content and engaging with your audience, but maybe you don't have the time, resources, or expertise to produce a high-quality podcast on your own. That's where my team and I come in. Our podcast creation service specializes in helping motivated entrepreneurs like you launch and grow their own podcast podcast. From concept to launch, we'll handle every aspect of podcast production from recording and editing to marketing and distribution. With our help, you can leverage the power of podcasting to reach a wider audience, build your brand and establish yourself as a thought leader in your industry. And the best part, you can do it all without sacrificing the time and energy you need to run your business. So why wait? Let us help you take your business to the next level with the power of podcasting. Contact us today by applying through the link in the show notes to learn more and schedule a consultation. Yeah, I mean, I think we all we all pray to the church of busy, right? We pray mm. to the church of busy, and we're all martyrs at the church of busy. And um, this this that that first TEDx, it was it was actually the very first talk I ever gave in my entire life. Uh, it was wow. terrifying, and Amazing. it came out of a uh, yeah, it came out of a blog post that I wrote um, where like the the idea was like, stop asking how can I help because every time there is a school shooting or a or a tsunami or like some horrible event. We're all like, how can I help? And we start like sending teddy bears. And I read this article that said that, um, that when Sandy Hook happened, right, 20 children and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School were shot. Um, 67,000 teddy bears descended on this tiny town of Newtown, Connecticut. 67,000. <laughs> so you know how many people live in Newtown, Connecticut? In total, 25,000, right? So so almost three times the number of residents in Sandy Hook, teddy bears. What happened to these teddy bears? People paid money to buy them, to ship them, to send them, to store them, to distribute them. And eventually, 
to incinerate them because there's only so many teddy bears you can give to a kid, right? Like what, but these tiny rays of hope that they were meant to be, some of them ended up in the hands of small children, but most of them were just wasted. And I was like, why does this keep happening? And the problem is, is that when we ask, how can I help? We center ourselves in the center, right? We center ourselves as like, I'm the solution. What do I have to offer? So we send teddy bears when in fact, that money could have been much better used for other things like grief counseling and 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 lobbying for common sense gun control and other sorts of things that would maybe have stopped this from happening again. Um, and so the better question to ask is what needs to happen? What needs to happen for this never to happen again? The answer is not going to be send a teddy bear. Like the answer is never going to be send a teddy bear when you say what needs to happen. What needs to happen is I blood donations and you know and 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 donations to funeral homes and like there's other things that need to happen. So. Um, you can take that change of mindset of how can I help versus what needs to happen. And you can apply to everything. When I sat down with a, 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 a an, an actual real business coach, um, when my business was like four or five years old, I walked in and I had, you know, the marketing plans and the P&L and the prospectus and my big giant to-do list and all this stuff. And he just took them all and like pushed them to the side of the table and looked at my giant to-do list. And he circled, it was like seven thousand, you know, lines in an Excel chart. And he circled one thing. And that one thing was like to change my company from being a sole proprietorship to an LLC. And he was like, that's it. He's like, if you don't do that, none of the rest of this matters. Like you need to do that because everything else hinges on this one thing. And I was like, oh, right. So like I could have been very busy, like redoing my website and putting together a new brochure and figuring out who to hire. But the truth is any of that stuff didn't matter unless I got the, you know, the foundation of it, right. And so, I, you know, it works with business. When my kids are having trouble with their homework, like I could help them, I could sit down and I can help them with their homework, but that's how can I help? How do I help you with their homework? It doesn't get them better at their homework the next day. It probably doesn't even teach them the thing because I'm just doing it for them. But if I say what needs to happen, what needs to happen is I don't understand Pythagorean's theorem. Okay, well, let's look it up. Let's watch a video. Let's learn it. Then they learn it and then they know it from then on. So from work to home to everything, every time we ask, how can I help? We're making ourselves the hero. If you're a boss and one of your employees comes in and they have a problem, you say, how can I help? Then they tell you how to help. Then suddenly you're the strong one. They're still the weak one, right? So like every time you're ready to say, how can I help? Please, please, please change that and just say, well, what does success look like here? What needs to happen for you to get there? Yeah completely changes the conversation. And also, you'll learn something, right? I hope so. I'm hoping I'm learning something. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was trying to think of, too. I'm happy you mentioned that, is reframing the question in a way where we're not the center of it. Mm -hmm. Would you say the output or, yeah, what the output needs to be like is the new center of how we should frame things? Yeah. I mean, look, nobody, nobody says, I want to run a department. I run around a company where all the people working for me continue to not know how to solve problems on their own. Right. Nobody, nobody says that. So if you come to me and you say, I've got a problem and I say, how can I help? You're going to tell me that, how can I help is to give you the solution. So you haven't gotten any better. You haven't gotten any smarter. Your critical thinking skills haven't gotten any more honed. But if I say, Um, what does success look like in this project? Where do you want this project to end up? What are you trying to accomplish here? Any of those questions, right? Like what's the goal? And you tell me, and I say, great, what needs to happen for, for us to get there? And you'll say, well, I'm having trouble with this one part, or I don't understand this, or I need an introduction to somebody who can help me with this thing. Like you'll tell me 
what needs to happen as opposed to me jumping in and like big footing all over your problem and then just making you feel like, all right, well, I guess I still can't do anything. I got to come to her every time there's an issue. So it just, it just like, we think as bosses, as managers, I'm just going to help them. Like they're coming to me, I'm going to help them. Like it's immediate, it's good, it's perfect. But the truth is all it does is it, 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 it just, it doesn't help them grow. It makes you the hero. It doesn't make them the hero. And as managers and as leaders, everything we're doing should be focused on making the people who work for us the heroes, because the more that they feel like the heroes, the more they can be the heroes. And we don't become the bottleneck, which I think, I mean, this is this is almost cyclical. I'm seeing the cycle of like, we become the roadblock, so our ego can be boosted, so we can keep solving problems for people, so people rely on us. And that way, nothing is ever like a self-sustaining system, just completely rolls into itself. Exactly. Yeah, that's tough. Exactly, exactly. And I think that happens a lot. I think it's 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 one of those things where where it becomes this habit where you just expect that they're going to come to you and so you just and and I don't know a single boss who's like I'm so thrilled that all of my people can't <laughs> accomplish anything without me. Yeah. Right? Like Yeah. I'm glad I'm getting calls at 2 in the morning to solve their Solve why they can't turn their computer on. This is great. Uh, yeah, I'm so glad I'm the center of every emergency. Like, nobody says that. Nobody says that. I want to touch on the executives that you were recruiting after they, you know, were vetted and they finally got to you. What you looked for was five traits. Hunger, weight, speed, tenacity, and grit. What about these traits create the ultimate executive? And I'm curious, are these traits we can train ourselves to be better versed in? Or are some of these like, you either have it or you don't. No, I do actually think that we can we can train ourselves to be better versed in. And I think um, some of it is, you know, I mean, let's take hunger, right? Like, what do you actually care about? How bad do you want it, right? Mm-hmm. You can't be insatiably hungry for somebody else's goals. So, you know, you can be hungry, you can, but I, I don't know that you can train yourself to be hungry. You can teach yourself to find the right goal, though, so that your hunger is actually your hunger. Um, tenacity is how many times are you willing to like fall down and get up and fall down and get up and continue to work hard and, you know, go for the thing. Grit is, are you willing to like get the bad news to get Mm -hmm. the tough feedback? Are you tough enough to sort of work through the difficulty? Like, can you get through the valley of suck, right? To get to the other side. Um, speed, uh, speed is how fast are you from failure to fix, Right. So uh, it's it it was it's not I didn't look for candidates who were perfect. I looked for candidates who were learners, who when they when things went wrong, they could turn the, the, the mirror back on themselves and say, what went wrong? How do I fix it? How do I make sure this doesn't happen next time? Every time my assistant comes to me with something that's wrong, I don't say that was wrong. That was terrible. I go, well, okay, we didn't get that right. Tell me about your process so that we can make sure that this doesn't happen next time, right? Like I want to know so that we can fix it. So the, the, the distance between failure to fix is really important. So wait, there were five, uh, hunger, weight, tenacity, speed, and great weight. Uh, so weight is how serious of a human are you? Like, do I trust you to walk into my most difficult client, to walk into my most important, you know, uh, a source of income and negotiate on behalf of my organization, represent me as a person? Are you a serious human, right? So all of those things we can learn and we can grow and we can develop or we can make sure that we're at least like trained on the right target so that it, it it's in alignment with who we are. Oh, I love that. That was a great, that was a great breakdown of everything. I've read most 
in most of articles that I've seen, it seems like the number one trait that determines success for many people is grit. And whether they have what you were mentioning, the ability to push through things when they suck or say, you know what, this is probably too hard. I'm going to give up. And that's like the, the biggest deal breaker. I'm wondering, most of these executives, I imagine they had to have gone through that failure previously to in order to like build the callus of grit in some way. Is that what you saw? Yeah, I, you know, uh, it it became very clear with me when I was interviewing people that there were two types of people. There was one type who would never talk about failures, right? Who Mm. would always tell me everything was perfect. And then when I did like pigeon, like I like, I like cornered them into, you know, (laughs) the the failure and then they would talk about it. It was never them. Of course, they were always like, oh, well, you know, my boss didn't have a good idea there or we didn't have enough resources or right. But it was never them. And then there were people who would talk about failure, right? And they would talk about failure and they would talk about what they learned from it and how they grew and how the next time things were different, right? And so I I was always really leery of the first camp because the first camp, of course, like everybody's had failures. And frankly, Nicholas, I'll tell you that the most interesting people that I interviewed in 20 years of doing search, I interviewed thousands of people, were the ones who had left turns and right turns and U-turns and who had failures and, 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 you know, rises from the ashes. They make the most interesting people. They make the best managers. They make the most compelling leaders. So, I, I mean, I, I think grit is important. Um, I, I think that it is something that, uh, I think it's something that comes over time. I did have one client years ago. He was the president of the largest bank in New England, and he was oh, wow. looking for somebody to run his family foundation. And he said, I only want to hire former college athletes. Huh, and I was like, what? That's crazy. What are you talking about? Yeah. He goes, think about it. A college athlete understands a lot of things. They've got grit. They've got tenacity. They understand teamwork. They understand a larger goal, right? They don't get bogged down by the like little losses here and there. They understand that it's, you know, a lo- they have a long view. They know how to play well together, right? They do the hard work in the dark when nobody sees it. They know how to operate without glory, right? And he was like yeah. describing all the things that these collegiate level athletes had. And I was like, you know, he's not wrong. <laughs> he's <on to laughs> he's something not here. wrong. And I started to notice that there was a little bit of a trend, but it was really funny. He was like, I would give him a book of, of resumes and he'd literally flip to the second page and look at college. And if there wasn't some athletic something, he was like, next, the person could have yeah. been amazing, but like next, he just, he wanted that, that mindset. And clearly you can get it in places other than college athletics. But for him, that was like the marker. Yeah, the parallel. I think that's an awesome pattern to recognize because the older I get, the more I realize like structured athletics throughout someone's lifetime does have a lot of parallels in how they operate in the work field per se. Yes. Especially, I mean, as we mentioned, leadership, discipline, all those things. And I think something else that comes up with athletes in the workplace too, is they can almost identify seasons in a way. Like they can understand that, hey, this yes. is going to be a season of a hard push. Like Q1, we have to push super hard. And then Q2, you're going to be able to like recover and do these other types of tasks. And I feel like they can compartmentalize that version of themselves a little better. Absolutely. And I think they understand like when to harness discipline, when to like let it go. They understand like you don't have to take every victory or every loss as like definitional because it's a long season. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting parallels. Let's talk about the burden of potential because it can weigh heavily on us. And that could be the potential for our life or the people we could be. And part of the process to overcome the burden of our potential is to come to terms with our ambition. 
I'm going to let you feel free to dive into Wonder Hell as well. But the question I want to wrap around that is, what does that process look like for people who aren't innately driven? Well, I think that Wonder Hell only presents itself to people who are worthy of it. So every time you've experienced some form of success, and it could be that you just sold your first business, it could be that you just sold your first tube of lipstick, right? Like it could be a big thing. It could be a small thing. It doesn't matter. It is a feeling of success that you weren't sure you could accomplish. And in that moment, you're like, oh, I sold one tube. Could I sell 10 tubes? Could I sell 100 tubes? Could I have 10 people working for me who each sell 10 tubes, right? Like you have this moment where you're like, I wonder if there's more. So people who aren't innately driven probably don't actually feel the burden of potential because they don't, they're not excited by potential. I think, though, most people do. So my first book, Limitless, was about how do you find that definition of success that matters to you. My second book, Wonder Hell, is about, okay, well, now that you've found something that actually matters to you and you've succeeded a little bit at it, now the stakes are much higher because you actually care. So I would say for somebody who's not innately driven, they should pick up Limitless and they should read that because they can find (laughs) something that they want to do that's actually much more exciting to them. Um, I think if you're not, I, I think... It's actually, I mean, I've actually never been asked this question before. And as I'm, as I'm thinking through the answer, I think we're all innately driven. I mean, we're evolutionary creatures, right? Like we wouldn't be here if there wasn't something in our DNA that was driven to grow and strive and succeed and continue to like get better. So I think if you're somebody who's not feeling innately driven, it's probably because you're not doing something you care about. And I would probably say you might want to figure out what you're doing with your life because you got only one. And it's not rehearsal, right? It's not practice. So if you're if you are if you are kind of mailing it in, like I don't know, there's some um great Henry Rollins line where he's like, there's not like downtime and uptime, there's not work time and lifetime, there's just time. Yeah. There is just only time. I a hundred percent agree. I think what's scary is being aware of our own mortality and also finding enough time to do the things we love and balancing these things back and forth, but it's all under one umbrella in which that we can't escape, unfortunately and fortunately. Yeah, I saw something the other day that was, it was one of these things that's for sale. And it's like a big poster and it has just like boxes. And the boxes are like for every week of your life. There's like only so many boxes. And I oh, looked at yes. it and I was like, you know, if I buy that poster, I'm I'm 52. So like I got more days behind me than I have days ahead of me. That's kind of a depressing thought, right? If you look at that. But it's also like an urgency provoking thought also. Like there's only so much time left. Like what are you going to do with it? And I I mean, I've never been somebody who's not intrinsically motivated. I've never been somebody who hasn't been driven. But I'm also not a competitive person. I think a lot of times people say like, well, I'm not driven because I don't want to compete with all the other people. I'm not competitive. I was lifting weights at the gym a couple of years ago and my my trainer was like, oh, well, you know, the woman I just trained, she lifted 175 and I was like, and I'd been lifting 165 at the at the time. And I was like, well, good for her. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to lift 170 to today and maybe next week I'll lift 175. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was like, so just because she could, like, I don't like, it, I think he wanted to motivate me to like, because he knew I could like, my deadlift PR now was 225. So like he knew I had more in me, but he was trying to motivate me by comparing me to other people. And I was like, that just doesn't motivate me. me. Like I want to be, the only person I want to beat 
is me from yesterday. And he looked at me. He's like, so you're you're intrinsically motivated, huh? He's like, that's weird. He's like, nobody is. So I just want to be clear that like being driven doesn't mean you're like driven to go like bigger, better, faster, more. And by the way, I like I – I read Lean In in 2013 and I knew I was supposed to love it because I'm a woman and we're all supposed to love Lean In. But I actually hated that book and I hated it, not because of Sheryl Sandberg's immense privilege and the privilege that she brought to her success. Like, I've used my privilege, you use your privilege. Like, we all be fools not to use whatever privilege we have. My issue with it was how she defined success, that it's this one singular, myopic, fastest and most expedient path to the corner office is the only one that matters. And if you're not on that trail, you're just wrong. You're you're, you're not leaning so. in. So I think, yeah, like you figure out what matters to you. Like maybe what matters to you is that you want to like buy a farmhouse and make your own energy and grow your own food. Awesome. Lean into that, right? So like it's not that you're not driven, you just don't know what you're driving towards yet. And I think we could, we're, we're all driven people. We're just, you know, you got to find the thing you're actually hungry for. Yeah, I agree. I love that too because you can even take a look at anybody in your inner circle or your friend group. The mere fact that people are different from each other is going to be a telltale sign that there is differences in what they're willing to pursue. And touching on that chart that you mentioned earlier, I've seen that chart. And there's a quote that's – I don't know if it's going around the internet or I'm just seeing it more often – or what. But there's this quote that's saying how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And I really do think that's so true that we lose sight of that sense of urgency in our day to day. And suddenly, that's why years go by quickly. And it's like, well, I wanted to do this thing. And now three years have gone by. Why didn't I just do this thing? It's because it's still in the day to day too. Yes. It's fascinating. It is true. It is true. And you know, I I, do you have kids? I do not have kids. Mm -mm. You know, okay. So I have two kids. And anybody listening will 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 hear this quote and be like, "Yep." There's a quote that a lot of um, a lot of uh, older parents say to younger parents, like older parents like me who are about to like send their last kid off to college. I look at parents of young kids who are like, "Oh my god, it's so hard. I'm not sleeping." <laughs> yeah. And I say the same annoying thing that those older parents said to me that I didn't want to hear at the time, but it's so true. The days are long, but the years are short. Hmm. Yeah. Right. The days are long, but the years are short. So we think we have all the time in the world. And then you turn around one day and you were like, wait a minute. Like when somebody says 20 years ago to me, I think 1980. I don't think 2000. I think 1980. Wow. Like I just like, yeah. like time went by Damn. in a blink of an eye. And, and, and here's the thing about that. Because the days are so long, we overestimate what we can do in a day. We all have these massive to-do lists and these packing our schedules with like back-to-back appointments, but we also underestimate what we can accomplish in a week or a month or a year. And so what happens is we don't set these big goals for a long period of time and then like block them out individually. Like if I want to run a marathon in 16 weeks, that means I need to be able to run 20 miles in 14 weeks. I need to be able to run 18 miles in 13 weeks. And you back that up and it turns out I only need to run four miles tomorrow in order to be able to do it. Like if I said, do you want to run a marathon with me? You'd be like, no, I can't run a marathon. But I'm like, do you want to go run three miles? You'd be like, okay, I could probably do that, right? So like I think we overestimate what we can accomplish in a day and underestimate what we can accomplish in a year. And so the next thing we know, years have gone by 
and we haven't made any progress on this like thing that's in the back of our head that we really want. And so we say, I'm not driven, but it's like, no, it's not that you're not driven. You're just not organized. Mm. Oh, yes. Touching on the time block things too is either we want these things, we just think they're innately going to happen in our days. But until we actually say, okay, three to 4 p.m., that's when I'm that's when I'm going to get my run in for this marathon or that's when I'm actually going to teach myself how to cook if you wanted yes. to be a chef of some sorts. Any of those things. Yes. I think it does boil down to organization for sure. Well, just one thing on that a long time ago I yeah. I, I somebody said to me, "Okay, you have a task list and a calendar. Why are they separate?" Mm. Wow. And I was like, well, because those are my tasks. And they're like, yeah, but what are tasks? And I'm like, well, tasks are things I do. And they go, well, when? I'm like in at different times. And they're like, okay, so why aren't they on your calendar? And I was like, oh, tasks are just appointments that I make with myself. So I don't have a task <laughs> yes. list anymore. I just, anything I have to do, it just goes on my calendar. I like assign a time to it. And if there's not a time you want to do it, like I'm never going to assign a time to cleaning out my garage. I'm just not. Yeah, it's not going to happen. You're going to have to put that on somebody else's calendar. That's okay. <laughs> exactly. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. Man, I actually, that's a big takeaway for me. That's awesome. <laughs> I wanted to ask another question around wonder hell moments because should we see, if we're having them frequently, if we're having them, we keep finding ourselves having wonder hell moments, should we be reassured that we're on the right path or is that a sign we're not focusing long enough to make the impact we're trying to make? Like we're being distracted. No. So when I... When I found myself in Wonderhell and I talked to these hundred glass ceiling shatterers and Olympic medalists and startup unicorns and everyday people like you and I, I thought I was going to find an answer. Like, how do I get out of Wonderhell? I'm in Wonderhell. How do I get out of it? It's like this one place. Yeah. And I was horrified to find out that there's, you don't get out of it, right? So like, number one, you have to embrace your ambition. We talked about that. Like embrace your ambition and say like, it's okay that I want to go for this thing. It's fine. Then I had to learn that you have to renegotiate your relationship with all these emotions, the excitement and the joy and the fear and the anxiety and the imposter syndrome and the potential and the promise and all the tsunami of emotions that come at you, knowing that those emotions are not these like slings and arrows that we have to digest and absorb and just like get through, right? Hunker down. But instead, they're exceptionally helpful allies that tell us that we're on the right track. And then number three, and this was like the real kick in the head for me, that every single person I talked to about how they got through Wonder Hell then told me about another Wonder Hell and another Wonder Hell and another Wonder Hell because on the other side of each success and each new potential is who else we can become. And so Wonder Hell is really a cyclical journey. It's a repeat place. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That Wonder Hell can have multiple implications in our lives and in our journeys to continue to reestablish what we're chasing after. And it can be like a sense of milestones occurring. Like, okay, maybe this Wonder Hell is teaching me the next lesson that I needed that I didn't get until I got through the first one. Yes. And I, you know, I, I thought it was so interesting because, you know, in, in these interviews, I was 100% sure that I was going to hear from somebody who was running, you know, a $20 billion company and they were going to be like, here's how I got through it. And I never have imposter syndrome and I never have doubt and I never have anxiety. But the person who's running the $20 million company is like, could I make it into a $30 million company? Could I make it into a $40 million company? Or maybe I've done it. And now I have small kids and maybe I want to spend time with my kids and maybe that's okay. And my new wonder hell is the potential that I'm seeing of being this amazing parent, right? So it's not even like a bigger, better, faster, more idea. It's just 
each time we succeed, we think success is going to be this end point, but it's really a waypoint. It's this portal. It shows us what else we can do. It's like, it's like when you're climbing a mountain and you get, you know, you're at the bottom of the mountain and you look up and you're like, I want to go there, right? You see the top of the mountain. But then as you climb the mountain, there are all these little like little, you know, um, spurs that you can go off that have like scenic viewpoints, right? And you see the scenic viewpoint. And what do you see? You don't see the top of your mountain. You see the top of your mountain plus the rest of the mountain range now that's behind it. And you're like, oh, there are other places to go to that are equally, if not more interesting. And suddenly you're like, how much daylight is left? Do I have enough water? How many snacks did I pack? And you're like, can I do it? Can I do this other thing? And so I think we have to know that life is just this series of losses and lessons and successes over and over and over again. And I think it's kind of exciting to know that Rather than trying to like, I just need to hunker down and like lean into this one horrible moment and just be gritty, I, I can I can know that I can learn from this moment. I can plan for the next one. I can look forward to the next one. I don't have to survive these moments of wonder hell, but I can actually learn to thrive in them instead. I mean, that that to me is pretty exciting to know that we have this long journey and it's a cyclical thing where every time we go through it, we like reach down into our bag of tricks and we take the new things that we've learned, we bring them back up with us each time over and over and over again. Yeah, and it's also not in the sense being like, oh, I got to the mountain. Oh my gosh, I can't believe there's another mountain I have to climb. It's like, oh sweet, this journey continues. And because I'm doing the thing that I'm in alignment with, I'm called to do, it's like, great. Now I feel equipped to tackle the next mountain instead of also saying, I'm unfulfilled that I got to the top of this mountain and now I see another one. Great. It's like, sweet, more mountains. I'm stoked this doesn't end here. Right. And, you know, to go back to your first question about, like, how do you know when it's time to quit? Like, if you get to the top of the mountain, you're like, eh, you know, that's fine, whatever. You know you're probably on the wrong track, right? Like, that's the time to quit. And you don't have to climb the next mountain. You can climb back down. You can go to a different mountain. You can go to a different mountain range. You can go to a different continent, right? So, like, there's nothing that says you have to keep going. So, the book is organized around this idea of an amusement park. And so there's Imposter Town, there's Doubtsville, and there's Burnout mm-hmm. City. And in each of the, the towns, there's five rides. And these rides are there to, to sort of represent the um, emotions that you're going to have in them. So like Imposter Town is when you suddenly see that you could be a bigger version of yourself and you don't even know if you should or you could or like, is anyone going to figure out I'm a fraud, right? So it starts off with like the Imaginarium. But the third section of the book – is Burnout City. And the very first chapter of Burnout City is 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 the merry-go-round, right? The nice, slow, happy little merry-go-round. And it's all about saying no to hustle porn. Because there may be these moments in your life where you're like, I've climbed the mountain, I've climbed the next one, I've climbed the next one. And you know what? Right now, I just want to stay where I am. Like things are cool. I've got other things to focus on. I'm focusing on myself. I'm focusing on my family. Maybe there's a global pandemic, right? There's like other things that are happening. I don't need to keep going. I'm making enough right now. I'm doing enough right now. So I think it's really important to know that even as we're in this cyclical journey of continuing to find out what else we're capable of doing, there are going to be moments where we stop and we say, you know what, I can have it all, but I don't have to have it all right now. It's okay if I sort of pause on this part of my life and focus on that part of my life. Those are great notes. Laura, we are rapidly approaching the final question of the podcast. But before we do, I want to acknowledge you for all that you're doing. I have had such a great time researching you and seeing your thoughts on different things. It's such a noble mission to 
take people who are chasing a fleeting sense of happiness and turning them into, maybe I just shouldn't say, yeah, maybe I should say that, turning them into people that are chasing fulfillment and finding what that calling is, evaluating where they're at in their wonder hell moments and pursuing something that's actually going to get them going every day and drive a greater impact. And the other thing that I also want to acknowledge you for is that sense of impact that you have. I, I feel like people who are impact centered are driven in the best way possible, that they're putting others first, that they're like wanting to see change in the world. And you're doing exactly that. So I appreciate all that you're doing. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. The final question of the podcast is, what does it mean to live a fulfilling life? So I think that definition is going to be different for every single person, right? I think it's every single person is going to feel differently. For me, I mean, I don't know. I just, I just hope when people come to my funeral that they tell really funny stories about crazy adventures we went on together. You know, like I don't want people to be crying. I want them to be happy. I mean, not because I'm dead, obviously, but happy because I was alive. <laughs> I think for me, I, I will feel like I have lived a fulfilling life if people say that their lives were just a little bit better because I was a small part of it. Mm. And I, I, I think that's probably the most that any of us can really hope for. Yeah. Well, can I, before we go, I'm sorry, yeah. I'm not, you're interviewing me. I shouldn't take over, but can I? Um, no, I love it. You ask everybody that question, but what's your answer? I want to know. Ooh. My answer is loving God, loving others. If you're doing that, then the likelihood that you're going to live a fulfilled life is pretty high. I love it. But thank you. Nobody's ever asked me back. Over hundred and almost 160 episodes, nobody's ever flipped it on me. So, Laura, you're the first. The first really? to know. Really? Oh, my yeah. gosh. I mean, like, you've heard all the answers. So, I feel like you, you're probably like, – I'm actually curious, like, what the worst answer you ever heard. <laughs> the worst answer I heard was somebody framed it around money. They're like, get my money up. Oh. And I'm like, oh, oh, well, that's not going to do it. <laughs> I'll have to have you on again I and mean, see uh, yeah. how that turned out for you. <laughs> totally. I would be fascinated. Yeah. yeah. That's a bad one. Tell people where they can find your book and where they can connect with you on the internet and say hello. Yeah. So my name is Laura Gastner Odding. All my good friends call me LGO. So I'm on all the socials at Hey LGO, H E Y L G O. Um, and you can find my book at wonderhell.com or Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere fine books are sold. Awesome. All those links will be in the show notes. Go say hi to Laura. Laura, thank you so much for being on the show. Bye. That was the episode. You just listened to it. Don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and share this episode with a friend that you appreciate. It'll take five seconds and is a great use of your screen time. The real reason you're still here. You want to know the answer to the riddle of the week. What's the difference between a jeweler and a jailer? A jeweler sells watches and a jailer watches sells. A little bit of a tongue twister of an answer for you there. Thank you for tuning in. New episodes every Friday at 6 a.m. Since you're here, though, if you enjoyed this episode with Laura, go listen to episode 92 with Alex Fasulo. You won't regret it. Be kind, be strong, be disciplined, be obsessed. Bye. Bye.